We began the book of 1 John together as a church because we wanted to make sure that we knew that we had eternal life. For 1 John 5.13, John gives us the purpose of this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And as he has been writing to us and making the way through his letter, he has been giving us parallels to consider. Using Jesus Christ as our example and using three questions of provocation and uh, uh, exposure allowing us to see and discover what is truly in our heart, he is saying that one who believes in Jesus Christ will first and foremost live like Jesus Christ. There is a moral test. Do we reflect the holiness of Christ within our life as, as a Christian in the manner in which we conduct ourselves? Secondly, he then asks us, do we love like Christ? Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus Christ has commanded us to love them? And thirdly, he asks us, do you think like Christ? A theological question asking us, do ourselves, do we have the right and perfect understanding of God and who he is, his nature and character, and the person of Jesus Christ? And as we've been working through the letter, we've been looking at these individually, and in the last portion of this letter, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uniquely weaves these together in a dynamic way. And we begin by looking at this as he's now concluding his letter in verse 7 of chapter 4. And I want to read for you verses 7 and 8 and then verses 20 and 21. I'm going to give you where we begin and where we end to help you see the line of thought in which John is uh, displaying and, uh, and writing to us that you may understand what he is trying to get at as we go through each of these verses together. He begins with this in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So the one who loves his brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has loved them, can know that they have a relationship with God. They know Him and been born of Him. In verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I want you to notice that statement because this is so key critical for what we are going to explore this morning. That God is love. He'll say it again in just a moment. But notice how he brings this to a conclusion in verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And again, let us understand how John is using that term liar. It is one who lies to themselves, deceiving themselves, deceiving their own heart. 
We can lie to others, but the one we most often lie to is ourselves. And John is saying that he is a liar to himself. For he who does not love his brothers whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that is God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now we've seen where we're going to begin, we've seen where we're going to end, and now let's weave it together. And this is so important for us as a church to understand what John is writing within this portion of his letter. In verse 7, he is saying that those who are loved, let us therefore love. And that is found in these English words, beloved, let us love one another. He is getting to this dynamic exposition of the greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is his thinking behind what he is writing. And if we say that we love God and hate our brothers, we are deceiving ourselves. For we cannot love God in whom we have not seen if we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ who we have seen. He says it's an impossibility and challenges us on that type of thinking. And he goes through this section and he says the reason we love God first and foremost is because he loved us. And it's not only that God loved us that we must note for ourselves this morning, but we almost also must take into consideration the manner in which he loved us, which is truly misunderstood today. Not only the manner in which he loved us, but the result of that love within our personal lives. So the question that we begin with is, do we love God? Now, that's a question you may never have considered asking yourself. But it is the heart of Christian theology to love God as a response to God first and foremost initiating a love relationship with us through the person of Jesus Christ. So do you love God? To answer that question, we must first and foremost establish what God considers to be love. And to get the identity of that love, we are given that three-word little phrase mentioned twice here in our text, God is love. It's not just that God is a loving God. It's that love originated with God. But a very specific type of love. Because many today question the fact if God is truly a God of love or not. And they base that question upon circumstances that they have faced in their lives. If God was a God of love, then why has my life been so difficult and so hard? 
If God is a God of love, why do I feel so empty and alone in this world? If God is a God of love, why do we have so many horrific things happening within the world today? If God is a God of love, then how is it possible that the degree of suffering that we see around us is as intense as it is? How can we think that God is a God of love by looking at all of these circumstances that surround us? And yet John said that God loved us and demonstrated that love in a very specific way and manner that had a very specific result upon our lives. Today, we use the word love so loosely that it's almost so generic that it really means very little to one that it is being said to. I I see young people throw it around so loosely that you can't really assign any real value or meaning to it. I I see people using love in a manner so, you know, loosely that, oh, I love my wife, I love my car, I love pizza, I'm just not sure what order. I love them in. And love doesn't have the resounding effect that it once did because we have cheapened it. We have diluted it. We have created a word that carries such ambiguity uh, with it that we don't know it when we see it. Was it God's intent that love merely be displayed through sex? Was that what He desired? Was that its meaning when it was given to us by Him? The phrase love here is defined by the manner in which God displayed it and showed it to us. And what John is saying is that love was just not an emotion in which God carries within Him, It is not something that originated somewhere else and he just amplifies that emotion or that feeling. What John is saying is that God is the originator of love. Love originated within God. It is part of his character. It's part of his nature. It demonstrates who he is and he acts upon it because it is part of him. The mystery of love is not found in the sonnets of William Shakespeare or Tenney. It is found in God himself. Even Shakespeare said that he could never uh, encapsulate the love properly any better that John 3.16 has, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is so important for you and I to understand. For the world throws this word around so loosely, and yet God is the originator of love, and he showed it very specifically and demonstrated it very um, uh, specifically towards us, and it had an ultimate effect upon our lives. It means so much more than the credit that we give it today within our culture. Look at what John says as he continues in verse 9. 
He says, in this, underline that word, because what he is about to say is that the love of God was manifested among us in a very specific manner. In this, the love of God was manifested among us. This is huge. Remember all of those people who've concluded that God cannot possibly be a God of love because of suffering, because of injustice, because of the difficult experiences and hardships that I've had in my life. How could God ever be a God of love? Now John is telling us, no, you're looking in the wrong direction. This is the way God showed love to the world and it is something that is fixated in time and nothing is going to change it. It is captured in history, and it doesn't matter what scenario we face in life, what difficulty, what trouble, what trial, what tribulation, it doesn't matter. It is a fixed point in history, and any time that we doubt the love of God, we just need to look back into history to say, God showed me His love. That's all I need. I know He loves me, and I can continue on in His love because nothing will change that point in history past. Notice what he says here. In this manner, verse 9, the love of God was manifested among us that God sent His only Son into the world, number one. That God sent. This is the way way God said, I love you. He sent Jesus to us. Knowing full well all that Jesus would experience once He got here living 33 years among us 2,000 years ago. Perfect in every way. Loved people perfectly, and yet he was hated and despised because his love was righteous, pure, and perfect, and their deeds were dark and sinful, and they were reminded of that fact in the light of his perfection. They hated him for it. They ran from him rather than embraced him because their hearts were darkened. Eventually culminating in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, thinking that they were getting rid of a problem before them in actuality, fulfilling the God of the plan of God perfectly that was orchestrated before the foundations of the world. God the Father knew that He was sending His Son, Jesus Christ, in the world, even though He would be rejected by His own creation. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world even though that He would be thoroughly, brutally handled by His own creation to the point where they tried Him. They spat upon Him. They played a game called King of Kings where they ridiculed Him by placing a crown of thorns upon His head and robed him in a horse blanket and says, here is your robe of royalty. And God the Father knew all of this in advance. The Son knew all of this in advance, and yet he still did it and went through it. Think about that. You who are a parent, sending your kid into a a situation such as that, who would do that? And there are many today that are questioning what is called the substitutional penal death of Jesus Christ, saying that no loving father could ever do that to his only son. But that's exactly the purpose and the definition of his love. Jesus was whipped 39 times by a cat and nine tail. 
and not cried out once. He was then brought up before all of the Jewish people and they cried out Barabbas as Pilate wanted to release someone the day before Passover. And they had this one who was uh, inciting rebellion. He was uh, one who was calling insurrection and he was one who was trying to resist Rome named Barabbas. And they called for him and they let their ultimate deliverer die at the hands of the Romans. Jesus then carried a cross down the Via Della Rosa there in Israel and he took it to a mountain called Golgotha, which we know as Calvary. And there he was hung on a cross with three nails between two thieves. But don't ever think or believe it was the nails that held him to that cross. It was the love that he had for you and I. This is the manner in which God demonstrates his love to you and I. The type of love that God is talking about is is defined by two words, sacrificial, unconditional. God loved us simply because he chose to love us. It's not because you're so good looking. I think you are. But that's not the basis in which God looks upon you with favor and love. It's not because you have done anything worthy or deserving of this love. God chose to love you. And he's saying this not by sending a Hallmark card, simply written, I love you. He sent his only begotten son into the world and allowed him to experience the incredible suffering in which he did to say, I love you to each and every one of us. So the next time you are confronted with doubt concerning God's love, simply look back into history and said, Christ died. Christ came, he died, and he rose again. God loves me. Nothing is ever going to change that. Say that. Nothing is ever going to change that. No circumstance that I face is ever going to change that reality. But the purpose of his death And the repercussions upon my life and the result of that death was the atonement for my sin. Christ did not die for himself for Christ was perfect before God, but Christ became my propitiation. He became my substitution. He took my penalty of sin upon his shoulders and paid that price before God the Father once and for all. The love of God was demonstrated by him sending his only begotten son into the world to be handled and mistreated in the manner in which he had, then climax, I should say, then resulting in his death. And at that point, the wrath of God towards me was satisfied. So love in God's eyes is something so much greater. He is saying, to me that I bore your sin that you may live. My son died to give you life. This is the manner in which I love you. The atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, dealing with past, present, and the sin that is to come still within my life. Christ has died for them. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus can receives that atonement and allows us 
to be justified before God the Father in perfection. Look at what John says here in verse 9 as we read first and foremost that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. His death resulted in our life and this is God saying, I love you. This is what God has done on our behalf. This is the manner in which God has demonstrated his love towards us. He says, the sin that you had before me that was uh, uh, separating you from me for uh, all eternity, that was separating you from me and my relationship that I desire to have with you, I have now bridged and cleansed once and for all in the sacrifice of my only begotten son. In verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's not where this love originated. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is the manner in which God has shown you love. That He paid a price that you could not pay yourself that allows us once, to get, once again to have that relationship with the Father through Christ. He goes on to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he's saying it here in this way, if God so loved us in this great manner, now did God love us when we deserved it? No. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, the Bible says. So it's not that we deserved it, right? We were far from Him and God still died on our behalf. As a result, look at what he says here. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. John is stating here that if we would love each other in this unconditional, sacrificial manner in which Christ displayed as he went to the cross on our behalf, it would demonstrate God to everyone who sees us. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. If you love one another as I have loved you, all the world will know that you are my disciples. So God is calling us to be loving people. But there's a quality to that love that we cannot negate. He wants us to love righteously. For the world is trying to parallel this love today. And this love is all accepting and perfectly tolerant and so on and so forth in their mind and in their hearts. And the chief goal of that love is the happiness of the other person. I love you and I just want you to be happy, so do whatever makes you happy. But in the unconditional, sacrificial love that God is talking about, uh, that we should love one another, and it's a righteous love, isn't it? It's a holy love. It's a love that loves a person so much that they don't want to see them continue in behavior that will separate them from God. 
It's a love that will take the risk in a relationship and saying, brother, I'm worried about you by, um, by this, what you're doing, this struggle you're having with pornography. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your relationship. And if you're married, it's going to ruin your marriage. You got to deal with it. Hey, living with that person outside of marriage, this isn't what God would have for you. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to love one another as Christ has loved us to bring these things to our attention that we may perfectly reflect Christ. You know, people say to me, ask me all the time, you know, is it okay to drink? Is it okay to have sex before marriage? Is it okay to, to have homosexual relationships? And so on and so forth. First of all, I am not here on this earth just to be okay, all right? I want a higher standard. I want what God has, His standard. It's not just merely okay. I want what God wants for my life. And as a result, now we must think in a much more different dimension and perspective. What does God want for me? Because He created me. He knows me intimately. He knows me perfectly. And He has the best in mind for me, whatever that may be. I need to trust Him. And that's what He is saying here. If we will love each other as Christ has loved us, even though God has not been seen, this unconditional sacrificial love will demonstrate God to a fallen world. Today, the chief element of the love that the world embraces is still a self-seeking love in so many ways. Where the love of God is a selfless love. It's an unconditional love. It's not about me. It's about you. And it is so different and radical in that way. And he is saying to us that if you demonstrate this love to one another, God abides in you and his love is perfected in us. But what does it mean to abide? John anticipates that question and continues in verse 13. This word abide originally originated in John 15. And I believe 1 John is an is a uh, exposition. It's, an, it's a further explanation of John 15, if you'd like to read that on your own. And in John 15, this concept of abiding in God, it means to continue with, hand in hand within relationship. So how can I know that I am abiding with God? He says here, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. I love the way the Holy Spirit anticipates our questions before we have even asked them. And when you read Paul's letter, he often anticipated the questions that he would receive on behalf of his letter as he was writing and then go on to answer that. And John does the same thing here. So how can we know that we are abiding? Well, he goes on to tell us, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us There's the relationship aspect of that word abide because he has given us his spirit. After Christ ascended into heaven, he promised in John 
14, 15, and 16, that he would send to us the Holy Spirit that comes and arrives in Acts chapter 2. This separates Jesus Christ from every religion of the world. This receiving of the Holy Spirit. This helper, the one who comes alongside of us. The one who is there to empower us and to allow us to change from the inside out as we read the Word of God. Allowing us to conform and transform into the image of Christ. The Spirit that He has given us, John says, is a testimony that we abide in Him. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been given the Holy Spirit. He resides within you. And in verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The Spirit has continued the ministry in which Christ started through the the apostles, the 12 that were gathered with Jesus, and they have continued where Christ has left off after His ascension. That's what John is saying here. Even though Jesus ascended into heaven, the Spirit came upon us, and now we continue the ministry of Christ into the world. Verse 15. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, I'm sorry, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. John is saying that if we have a relationship with God, and the Spirit of God is within us, the Spirit of God Uh, being the third person of the Trinity, has all the characteristics within him of God the Father. And he now resides in us. And since God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Spirit are all God in one, now that the Spirit resides in us, loving one another in the manner that God has loved us through Christ should be a natural desire to us. That it should permeate through us to others. It's part of our new spiritual DNA as a Christian. That's what John is writing here. And in verse 17, as he's assured us that whoever abides in love abides at his continue with in relationship with God and God continues with in relationship with him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world the word perfection there means to come to full fruition to become better than we once were that's what it means And as God is working in us and as we are loving in the manner in which He would love, we can take this love as it is being perfected in us and that love should cast out fear. But fear of what? Any fear? 
fear in general or is it specific? Well, I believe it's specific. And God tells us what it is right there. That at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not be fearful to think or to consider that we are therefore under a umbrella of judgment and that Christ's coming to us is not a matter of judgment, but a matter of rescue. And therefore, I don't have to fear the coming of the Lord. John is saying that we can know and have confidence that for the day of judgment, that because Christ has taken the wrath of God upon himself on my behalf, then when Christ comes, it's not a mission of coming to this world for the sense of judging me. It's coming to this world to rescue me from what is going to take place next. And that's what he is saying here. When we allow this love to be perfected in us, to make us better than we were, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. The continuation of the character and the ministry of Christ now through us in this fallen world. There is no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casts out for fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If we haven't discovered yet, Christ is God is always the initiator of everything within our life. God always initiates. He initiated the plan of creation. He initiated the plan of salvation. He initiated the the plan of his return, of the rescue of those who are his. He is the one that initiated. And the reason we love him is because we have first experienced the love of God for ourselves. But what experience was that? What did we experience to allow us to experience the love of God. We've been born again. We have seen and understood the meaning of the cross. The Spirit has convicted our hearts, drawn us to the Father, and we repented of our sin and believed on Him for eternal life. And we have now experienced the love of God by being transformed by the atoning work of Jesus Christ in His first coming. That's what he is saying here. And the reason now we love one another is because first and foremost, Christ died for us. Secondly, we love one another because the Spirit of God has been given to us. We love one another because Christ is coming back for us. We love one another because God has loved us first. That's what John is saying here. That's what he wants us to grasp from all of this. And he says in verse 20, as we conclude, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? Liar, deceiving yourself. 
You can't say you love God and hate your brother in Christ or sister in Christ. Can't do it. And the type of love that he's talking about is not a selfish love. It's not a love that is consumed with the happiness of the individual. It's a love that Christ demonstrated as he came and died on the cross and then arose on the third day. The love of Christ is unconditional, it's sacrificial, and it is righteous before God. And that is the love that God is asking us to love one another. And if we hate our brother, well, we are a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I am assured of God's love each and every day, first and foremost, because Christ has come. The debt of sin has been paid. The crucifixion has taken place. Three days later, what happened? Resurrection, right? He walked out of the grave. Number two, I'm assured of God's love because I know He loves me because He indwelt within me the Spirit of God. He kept his promise to me as God will keep all of his promises to you that he has made to you through his word. For he is able not only to promise but to perform those things that he has promised to you. And thirdly, I can look to the future with confidence and without fear. The Bible tells me clearly that as we grow closer to the return of Jesus Christ, the world will become more unstable, more inconsistent, illogical. It'll become more fragmented and frayed. It'll begin to erode from the inside out as sin takes its ultimate hold upon the world. As Paul tells us that in these last days, troubling times will come, and yet I can be assured that I am in Christ and that His coming for me, I do not fear as one who stands in judgment, but I rejoice as one who anticipates the rescue of those who are in Him. That is why I am assured of the love of God. And today you are here with us. And I don't know your story. God does. And I'm telling you this morning that no one loves you more than Jesus does, than God does. Knowing everything that you have done publicly and privately, God still came and died on your behalf if you'll receive him. And, re- and accept him as your savior. He can wash you clean. You can have a brand new life starting today in him. I like to say it this way. If he can save me, he can save anybody. And I'm so grateful that I can truly be called the epitome of God's grace. But I stand here this morning to tell you that no one in this world, no one, will love you like Christ has loved you. It's an honest love. It's a real love. It's an authentic love. It's a true love. 
It is not a love that just showers you with everything you want, but more importantly, provides everything you need. And your greatest need today, if you are not in Christ, is that atoning work to deal with the sins of your heart and mind. And they can be dealt with today in the person of Jesus Christ if you simply will cry out to Him. Repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ.